today what I'd like us to do is turn back to Matthew chapter 11 for a moment. I'm going to read the text here again, but I want to back up a few verses to um, Matthew 11 verse 28. And as you're turning there, let me ask you a question. What is the ongoing commercial of Christianity that you present to those around you? What's the advertisement that your words and your actions are presenting? Are people uh, enticed to want to know the Savior who has saved you from your sin that we just sang about? Who saved your life from the shipwreck that it was? Are they encouraged? Do they want to know? Are they like, well, there's that glum Eeyore neighbor of mine, you know, who doesn't really seem to enjoy much of anything. And, uh, you know, is, is that the commercial they get? Do they see a boring savior? Do they see a fearful person who's anxious about politics and culture and everything else? What is the presentation that your words and your actions are giving to everyone around you about the God who saved you? With that in mind, we go back to the text of Matthew chapter 11. In verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All of you who have been weighed down with trying to present yourself as a good person, trying to convince yourself that you are righteous, trying to convince God and others that you're righteous. Our culture today, certainly, if you're paying attention, should be wearing you out a bit with all the different ways they want you to present yourself as being righteous, as being good. The list is becoming long of words we're not supposed to say and things we're not supposed to do and so on and so forth. And if you're really in that much of the culture, you'll start to feel the weight of this. How can I really be good and righteous before a holy God? Jesus, in, in the midst of that, with an oppressive group of religious leaders, he comes and presents a message of rest. Not just of any type of rest, but eternal rest. And he says, come to me if you want that. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields. Now, I read the previous section because Matthew writes thematically more than chronologically. He's connecting things. He's saying Jesus just presented this idea of the yoke being easy and the burden being light. Now let's see that illustrated. Let's see how that connects to what he was just saying. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bed, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. 
But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The choice presented to you, if you're paying attention in this particular text, in this section of of Matthew, is the choice that you have regarding who your master will be. Who will be the governor, the Lord, the master over your life? Will it be self? Will it be other people? Will it be God? Those that I've been around through the years that like to say, well, you know, I serve no one. I'm, I'm the master of my own life. I'm, I am basically, you know, God in my own little way of thinking and all that. I, I don't really, I'm my own master. Nobody tells me what to do. Yeah, do you tell that to the IRS? Be real, tough guy. Is, is that real? Do you say that to the cop when he pulls you over? He says, uh, excuse me, sir, you were going 72 and a 14. <laughs> Doesn't exist, I know. It's a hyperbole. You know, you know you're, you're, you're blowing right through the laws. And the cop says, you know, what do you have to say? And you go, oh, I'm my own master. How's that going to work? Well, you can enjoy county lockup. Now you got a lot of people that, that would say such things until they stand before a judge. Right? They've, they've been arrested for a crime. They, they think they're their own master. Then they stand before a judge and he says, what do you, how do you plead or whatever? You don't see too many people say, well, I'm my own master and your laws don't apply to me. And if they do, they lock them up. Which is an obvious reminder that you, sir, are full of it. You're making it up. You're a blow George, as my mother used to say. Probably still does. You're a big talker. Nobody is there truly their own master. That's nonsense. Everyone has people over them. And those who arrive at that level of power where no one is over them, watch out for them. So what kind of master do you wish to serve? We have put before us in the text today two different masters. The master of the lordship of man and the master of Christ. And when you look at yourself in the mirror, when you look at humanity with clarity of thought, with any depth of perception throughout history, do you find the need, do you find it wise to submit yourself to the lordship of man? What form of government is right? What form of government is best? People, I think, today in America, a lot of them have gotten bored, more or less, with capitalism, and they think, you know what, we should try socialism. As if that's going to go better. Study history on socialism and how it works out. Cap and communism and these other things, watch and see how they work out. Everybody assumes they're going to somehow end up on the top of that political pile and that they will end up being the champagne socialist who gets to avoid all the oppression that happens to everyone else. Ask Venezuela how that's working. And you can go through history and you can see these kind of things. Why is it that things always go to the pot? Why do they always fall apart and decay? Why is it that we have it as a self-evident truth that power tends to corruption and that absolute power corrupts absolutely? Why is that? Because what is in us? That's the problem. Now, what does that say about Jesus? What does that say about God when he is the only one who truly possesses all infinite power? 
and all infinite glory and all of that knowledge, everything that he has, and yet he is good. What does that say about him as compared to you? Many of us look back at King David and we think, oh, well, yeah, King David, he sinned with Bathsheba and he, did, he killed Uriah and things like that. You really think you would do better? Do you? Because that's the rage today. Everybody looks back 50 years, 100 years, 2,000 years or more, back at the past and thinks those people were idiots, we will do it better. It's a cycle of parenting, right? Everybody thinks they're going to do it better than their parents did. And we look back and we think we would do it. You think you would do it better than David. If you had unlimited power, you would do it better. See, there's an audacity in us that tends to think we wouldn't do such things, but that's largely because we don't have the ability to express our depravity. We have presented to us Two masters. The question is, whom will you serve? And many people think, as I said earlier, they think they're the captain of their own ship. They act like as they imagine that kind of metaphor happening, it's two ships passing one another. You see a beautiful ship, it's glorious in all its beauty, and there's a captain on there, you know, he's got a lovely hat. He's probably got the feather, the whole thing, and it's blowing in the breeze, and it's sailing by, and, and you're in your ship, on the other side and you pass by one another and your life's going pretty good and you've got things together. You've got air conditioning and a nice car and all these other things and you know, why do you really need that other ship? And you're like, you know what? There goes Jesus on that ship and you know, I think I'll pass on him for now. But that's the wrong illustration. That's the wrong metaphor in the brain. You can picture Christ and on that ship sailing by in this glorious uh, manner, but then you need to revisit how you think of your own life. That last song that we sang, Shipwrecked. How many shipwreck movies have you watched in your life? I know I've watched a bunch. Read several books, Lost at Sea and all those kind of things. I remember just watching a movie recently about the, the story that inspired Moby Dick. Guys that were lost at sea for like, I forget, it was like 50 days or something like that. They ended up eating the guys that died. All of that horrible realities of these things. You know what I've never seen happen in one of these stories? I've never seen the guy who's out there in the little dinghy, you know, who's been out at sea, starving, sunburned beyond like, you know, normal complexion and, and emaciated and all that. I've never seen one of those guys when that glorious ship sails by and the captain calls out, do you, you know, do you need assistance? He's like, nah, I'm good. I got it. I'm sure, I'm sure there's land. Just a couple more days. You know, I'm just going to muscle this out. We'll be okay. You never see them do that. Why? Because they recognize their despondency. We fail to see how despondent we are. We're, we're in the little life raft on the side. We're starving to death. We're, we're scorched by the sun. We're laid down with heavy burdens and we think, I've still got this. Over and over, the ship's passing by. When the gospel is presented to somebody, when the word of God is open to somebody, they have the opportunity to, to hear the captain call, do you need assistance? I can save you from this despondency. And we keep saying, no, I'm good. I got this. Clearly, I've got this. 
unreal how we fail to see. If you go, if you are reading through the book of Revelation, you come to the church of Laodicea and you read about the people there and Jesus says to them, look, you don't even know that you're miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't even know it. You don't know how bad off you are. This is why we come to the word of God. It helps us see as we ought to, what we need to see, that we might come to the Savior, to the God who is truly good and be healed. What is it that man tends to bring with his lordship over us? We see it illustrated here in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is passing through a grain field. Key word here, you might highlight or whatever you do with your Bible to help you remember, a key word here is on the Sabbath. This becomes a sacred cow with the, the leaders of Israel. The Sabbath and the temple are the two big things that end up getting him killed as they would view it. He's passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. Now when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, now as they offer their complaint, they believe that they're breaking the law. There is nothing in the law that actually they are violating here. Jesus declares them at the end in verse eight or verse seven that they are innocent of the accusation. So they're not breaking any law. So what law are they breaking? Why are they bringing a complaint? This is where we enter into the heavy-handed nature of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time. They had heaped up burdens upon people to such a degree that life became painful. Utterly, it, Sabbath became a chore rather than a rest. They had on, for the Sabbath, they had 39 different categories of things that could be called work. Now think that through. You're out on Saturday, you're out in the yard, and you want to play with uh, the kids. You want to play catch. And you start to think about, wait a minute, does this break one of the 39 categories? One of the categories, for example, was um, you can't spit in the dirt. And you remember when Jesus spit in the dirt, stirred it, which is another form of work, put it on the guy's eyes and healed him, which is a violation of their understanding. So what Jesus did was he just said, your rules are nonsense. You have created all of these rules, tons and tons of rules that have made the Sabbath a quarantine instead of a time of true rest. They had a rule that you couldn't travel more than a half a mile on Sabbath. But then they realized that was too hard to keep. So then they decided if you left a piece of your possession, a piece of uh, something you owned at that spot, you could then go another half mile further from that. So you kept dropping these like coin things every half mile. Was that what Sabbath was intended for? Was that why God gave it? Of course not. So what they did, you were, any of you have a time in the last couple of years where you had to be in quarantine? Wasn't that pure joy? Like sitting in your bedroom like an inmate? 
You know, somebody brings you the food. That was the first time I did a quarantine thing back in March of 2020. We were worried and so on and so forth, like everybody seemed to be back then. And uh, I was in the room and we were, we're, our girl, one of our girls has asthma. And so we didn't, we were concerned about, you know, different stuff and all that. I remember I was sitting back in the bedroom and the, the kids would come to the door, open the door and like put the food at the door and, hi, dad. <laughs> You're just stuck in there. That's what they did with Sabbath. They made it this obnoxious, fearful thing where you were paranoid about some snooty Pharisee, like, no, you broke the rules. Everybody loves that guy. And that's what they do here. Notice the complaint, verse 2. Look, your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, once you've demonized somebody, you know how this goes. Once you've decided, I can't stand this person, then everything they do becomes a source of complaint. Look how this guy walks. Look how he drinks his water. What a nerd. That's what we do. We demonize people, and it doesn't matter what they say or how they say it, somehow they're wrong. We remember this with Trump. We remember this, and we see this now with Biden. People that, don't, that demonize these people, now it doesn't matter what they do. It is a source of ridicule. What they want to do is build a case to kill Jesus. So they're just compiling the list. And they've said, look, you're breaking the rules here. What is going on? This isn't right. Now, the Pharisees, of course, were the most zealous in the keeping of the law. There were only about five to 6,000 Pharisees during this time. And yet they have such a dominant influence a minority that's very vocal and very ardent in their belief can become very dominant in society as we know. And this is the Pharisees. They had become the heroes in many people's minds of what it meant to keep the law because they didn't just keep the law. They, did, they kept the further rules, the 39 categories, or at least they aspired to. So you have a group of men who love to point out faults. Oh, joy. Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Verse three, Jesus said to them, guys who keep and understand the Bible really, really well, have you not read what David did? Now that statement there is Jesus being somewhat uh, annoyed, you might say. Have you not read? So you're telling me, so here's the problem. They've brought up an accusation against his disciples that actually isn't in the law. And then something that actually is in the word of God, they don't know or don't bring to bear on the situation. Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. So nobody's supposed to eat this bread except the priests. And yet David did. If you go back to the story, you can read that and you see what happens through that. And you, you might be a little surprised to see that he's not condemned for that. Why is he not condemned? This is showing that there's an exception to the rule. And this group of people has no exceptions to their rules. What you're finding is that mankind is more demanding, more exacting, more eager to punish than God is. Further, he gives him a second illustration. 
Verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Huh. How do they not know that? How, do, how have they not taken the time to use these type of stories to inform their understanding of what's going on? Of how to even build their rules? It would seem that the Pharisees are much like all of us and they tend to jump to a conclusion and if something tends to get in the way, they ignore it. There are many things that you study in the word of God that if you push it too far, you end up coming out on the other side realizing that you are ignoring texts of scripture. Here, they have overlooked obvious texts of scripture because it's a lot easier just to come up with a rule. It's a lot easier to come up with 39 rules, so it would seem, rather than to try to give all the exceptions. So we homeschool, and um, as the kids are going through learning the rules of English, it's kind of funny. You know where I'm going already. You start learning the rules of English, and then you start learning, here are the 19 exceptions. I before E, except after C, and all kinds of other things that aren't true. You start learning exceptions. So I think what happened with the Pharisees, they start seeing exceptions, and they're like, well, I don't really know how to answer that. I don't really know how to deal with that, so we're just going to leave that out. Then we're going to come up with a way to just even stay away from it. They actually came up with, with those 39 categories. That's an illustration of it. They came up with what they called a fence around the law. So here's the law, but we don't even want to come close to it. We want to stay as far away from it as possible. And so we're going to set up this fence all the way up here. So if you, if you're, if you want to be godly, you, you just don't break these rules. But if you want to be one of the super godly, you don't break even those. It's called legalism. You come up with your own set of rules. We do this too when it comes to Christian liberty. Are you allowed to drink alcohol? Well, I have a list of reasons why I don't. But is it lawful for a Christian to drink alcohol? Yes. That's, that's not a forbidden thing in Scripture. Now, there have been some funny arguments I've heard over the years about how it wasn't really wine that they were drinking, that Jesus turned water into wine that was actually juice and stuff. I read books on that in college, and I was like, this is the weirdest thing. Uh, how can you even prove that? Right? It, but anyway, so can a, Christian, can a Christian get a tattoo? Well, I've had that question a lot through the years. That some of you know that pre-Christ, I got a tattoo on my arm, and so I've had a lot of people... Ask me about that. Is that lawful? Is that allowed? Well, that which is not of faith is sin. But can I look at you and say, you cannot do this. God does not allow that. No. I don't have a, a text of scripture that I can land on to say you are not allowed to do that. Now, you can go back to the Old Testament, and you can look at Leviticus, when he talks about making no mark on your body in regard to your gods. But do we want to go back to the Old Testament law and apply that? Uh, Dave White doing a Sunday school class on... The law, and last week he highlighted for us a few verses that were kind of fun. One of those is if your son is rebellious and will not listen, then what are you supposed to do with him? I'm staying out. All right, Dave's staying out of it. <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to bring that rebellious son who refuses to listen to you and to the law, bring him before the town and you stone him. Okay. Um, 
do we want to go back to the law on that level and follow all? So you're going to say you can't get a tattoo because of what it said there in Leviticus? But what about all these other laws? My laws regarding adultery and, and so on and so forth. Uh, there's, there's a whole lot of laws in there. How do you determine which ones you're supposed to drop and which ones you're supposed to keep? Now, I like I said, I have reasons, and I can go through them, why I don't drink alcohol. I, it, I was an enslaving thing in my life pre-Christ. I find that I could I run headlong towards such a thing. I find that others follow my example, especially in pastoral kind of ministry. I find the higher you go as far as being in front of people, the less freedom you actually have because of that principle. I think that's what Paul's talking about, some of that I become all thanks to all men. Right? I, I don't think that that means I cling to my, my freedoms and that I parade them. I think it means that I'm more inclined to turn against those. I'm more inclined to give those freedoms up. I have reasons for those things. At the same time, I can't look somebody dead in the face and say, you should never touch alcohol. And the church historically has done those things. We have done those things. We've created rules that were not in scripture and then we held everyone accountable to that and if they broke them, they're out. This is a human tendency within us to hear God's law and to go, yeah, that's good, but there's this thing going on in my life that I really don't like and so I wanna get that out and so on and so forth. I have other reasons for the, re, uh, the decisions that I make that all of us should bring to bear when it comes to Christian freedom. But we should not arrive at a point where our convictions becomes God's law. The Pharisees are an uh, ever-present example of how wrong that can go. A group of people who I want to try to be kind to on a certain level to say that I think they started in a good place. I think they started with wanting to be ardent, zealous keepers of the law. Got out of control and lost their way and became the very enemies of Christ. When the Messiah came, they couldn't even see him. They couldn't even see him. So going back to the text, he says in verse five, have you not read, just as he did regarding David, have you not read, have you not read that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Now let me go back here for a moment and, and say, David, why is it that David was able to break the law and go into the temple? Why does Jesus highlight that? Why is it that he highlights the priests being able to break the law and, on the Sabbath? Well, he's driving a point which is arrived at in its culmination in verse 6. Um, this is a people who are fundamentally misunderstanding who he was. David was able to break the Sabbath. David, or Jesus isn't just highlighting exceptions to the rule so that now that becomes the precedent. What he's going back to, if you're at first glance, it kind of looks like Jesus is giving exceptions. So therefore, you know, you can just eat the bread. No, that's not actually what he's doing. What he's doing is he's driving them back to something. Why was it okay for David to do this? Because he was the anointed king. Abathar, the, the priest at the time, knew this. He knew that David was on a sacred mission. He knew that the anointed king, the guy who was going to be future king, because Saul's still alive at this point, he knew who he was. He had the authority to make this request. The priest, why is it that they're able to break the Sabbath? 
on that day, as it says here, because of the authority that they have as priests. What's Jesus pushing to? You don't know who I am. You don't know the authority that I have. You fail to recognize that reality. He says in verse 6, But I say to you, those who are objecting, I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Those are fighting words in the first century. That fails to have the bite that it does on us that it did to them. When 9-11 happened, I was out at school about an hour and a half from New York City. And uh, I was shocked like all of us. I was in all the, the emotions and all that that come with it. At the same time, I was not as affected by it. It didn't register in the same way as it did for a whole group of students that were there who had family that lived there. My wife being one of them. I didn't really know her at the time much. But her mother actually passes through, uh, the, used to pass through the trade center on the subway every morning. She'd have been there that morning. For some reason, she didn't go. Uh, so Priscilla and many of the others that had family in New York City are crying. They're affected deeply by this. It registered in a way that it didn't for people like me. I don't know that I had a, an equivalent of that. For them, to, for Jesus to make this comment about the temple is to attack kind of the nationalism of the country. If you go to Jerusalem even today, you got the, 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 the whole landmark of the city, you know, the, the whole footprint of the city, and you can't escape seeing the temple mount. It dominates. It takes up this large section of the city. It's, it's kind of shocking. Uh, we don't do that today. We don't have a, a church here in Springfield that is like the church and the monument or even the Lincoln stuff or any of that. We don't have anything like this. It dominated the landscape of the country. And what it screamed out, what it said is, we are God's people. We are marked by his name. Our city is named because of him. We have this temple that is erected for him. Everything in our, in our society in Jerusalem here is geared around that temple. And you're saying you're a bigger deal than that? I mean, even visibly it sounds absurd. Something that dominates the map and you're just this guy, a dusty carpenter. What are you talking about? That's the, the insult that it, it struck at the nerve of, of their religiousness. It struck at their nationalism. They felt like they were different than everyone else who had been conquered by Rome because they maintained a certain sense of national integrity, largely because of that temple. So when Jesus says something greater than the temple is here, that at that point, I think they probably didn't even hear what he said previously. You know what this is like if you've been in an argument or something like that with a person and they say something really top shelf kind of too far and now everything else that they said, doesn't matter how many sins they committed, this is the thing you're paying attention to. They're no longer listening at that point. This would be startling to say the least and yet this is what Jesus pushes them to. And then he says directly after this, verse 7, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would have not have condemned the innocent. They were missing the point of the Sabbath, they were missing the point of the law, and they missed the authority 
of the man standing in front of them. He had the authority to show them what was truly right and wrong, and they could not wrap their minds around it. The temple throughout Israel's history became a sacred monument that made them think, if I'm close to that, no one can touch me. Same thing happened in Jeremiah's day, and then three different invasions from the Babylonians should have driven the point home, but they didn't get it the first time, they didn't get it the second time, and in the third time, now they wailed and cried and acted like they didn't know. Incredible. Something greater than the temple had truly arrived, but they they weren't even willing to consider that as an alternative, as an option. This was too audacious for Jesus to say. Now, in order to make it even worse, to make the point even more clear, he says in verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He goes after the temple, and he goes after the Sabbath. They had twisted and contorted the meaning of all the, the representative things that God had given them. All the representation things that, he, that, that typified God's holiness and what he had to give, they had twisted. The Sabbath was now a pain. The temple was now run by kooks who were charging people way too much and, and had created a system not totally unlike Disneyland where they had lots of traffic and very little worship going on. They were missing the point. So let's go back to the beginning of what I was talking about with this sermon. Who do you wish to serve? Who is it that you would delight yourself to serve? Uh, I think many of us in the Christian life have presented a very poor commercial for what it is to follow Christ. I think we do that largely because we fail to see uh, the other gods that wish to rule us and what kind of lordship they would hold over us if they had the power. We've had it pretty good in America for a long time. And so we failed to see how bad life can get. Some of the most pro-American people I've ever known are people that are immigrants. I love immigrants. Uh, I, my wife is an immigrant. I married one of those, right? But she's very pro-America because she lived in bad places in Brazil. She knew what it was to live in a dangerous area. And a lot of us have had it so good, we fail to see how incredible what we have really is. And we're going to lose it. It's all going down. And it's all because of a moral decay, an unwillingness to recognize God. And it's all going to go down. And people won't recognize how good it was until it's too late. But for you as a child of God, as a follower of Christ, let me ask, is, is he a joy to serve? Are you glad that he is this type of God? I kind of feel like Naaman, you know, he goes to Elijah and he's got this leprosy and, and all that. And he goes and he says, hey, you know, what do I got to do to be cleaned? You know, what, what do I got to do to be healed? I mean, and they say, go down to the Jordan, wash yourself seven times. And what does he do? He walks away pouting. He walks away stomping down to the river like a petulant child. You know, mm, I don't want to. And, and then there's one of his lieutenants that's like, oh, what's your problem? Didn't he tell you something easy to do? If he told you to do something hard, 
Wouldn't you have done a conquer this city? Wouldn't you have done that? And he's like, well, yeah, of course. And he's like, okay, yeah, I'm being stupid. I'm going to go down to the river and wash. And, he, and, you know, he's whining about the Jordan River. We have better rivers back home, he was saying. And then he goes down. He washes himself seven times, and he's healed. Maybe some of you have forgotten. Maybe we forget far too quickly what we were before Christ. Maybe you forget how bad it can get. Or maybe you know all too well. And yet you find yourself running back to broken cisterns. You find yourself like a dog returning to its vomit. It's truly what sin is. Maybe you find that to be true. So what do we do? Turn with me to Revelation just for a moment. I want to show you that little spot there in Revelation chapter 3 with Laodicea. Verse 17. Because you say I am rich and I become wealthy and I have need of nothing and yet you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you, buy from me gold refined by fire so you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to, appoint, or to anoint excuse me, your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. We have an incredible Savior presented to us in Scripture who does not load us down with all types of goofy rules that we cannot fulfill. We have a God who is so good that he would pay the debt for us that we can never pay, that we might live in newness of life and serve him with joy. Hold your head up high like that's true. Act like that's the reality. Believe that he truly can supply these things. Come to Christ renewing that belief. If you're struggling with that belief, welcome to the club. So then what's the prayer? God, I believe. Help my unbelief. Come back to him again. Know the joy of fellowship with Christ. Know the joy of salvation all over again. Serve him with gladness. Serve him with joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are truly and incredibly good. We thank you for the songs that we sang this morning that, that drive home that point. We thank you for the opportunity to be together to encourage one another with such words. May we serve you with joy and gladness all our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.